0: back.
1: We'll be right back. Well, the roots of this, thousands, over 5,000 years ago, this meditation has its roots in the warrior classes of ancient times, and this is, you know, hand-to-hand combat, and these are the times, you know, among the noble or the righteous warriors where it wasn't like today you push a button on a drone, and you, you couldn't fight out of anger, fear, jealousy, revenge. You didn't want to fight. You wanted to make peace. It wasn't some macho thing that I'm going to crush you because I'm bigger and stronger and taller or whatever. And so we're all warriors. Uh, A father or mother is a warrior, meaning that you are going to bat for your children. You're going to bat for your family. You believe in your family. And the warriors, at least where the tradition of meditation, this meditation comes from, was a righteous profession. And all of us in that sense, when we get up in the morning and we have to go to work and we, or we have to go to school and there's tremendous odds against us. And if we have anger, revenge, jealousy, fear, any of those things, we lose. We lose the battle. But if we're smart, we're calm inside, we're peace loving, but we've got a boatload of energy and focus and we if we need to strike we can strike but we don't strike out not out of fear or anger or fatigue but out of stress you know like well that's what's needed there's ignorance here we need to do something
2: Good morning. At least it is where I am. Um, good, whatever time of day it is for you. Um, this is a today's participant is is Bob Roth, and he's an exquisite person, but a, um, a meditation teacher and has been doing this for many years. And uh, he's living it. I mean, this is uh, it's not the the way he lives his life is. Not just as a meditation teacher, he's an activist, and uh, I, I i before I had the conversation that you're about to listen to, I read his his new book Strength and stillness and not only is it a good reminder um about all the incredible benefits of meditation um, it's a it's a good resource to find some pretty concrete evidence why it's so important and valuable for us to be um, paying attention to nature. Uh, that that may seem kind of weird, but um, you know, nature has a way of uh, <laughs> to be economical. It has a way of rewarding us when we're in harmony with nature and with our nature. And there seems to be something about meditation that does that, because you'll hear it in the conversation, but if you read the book, or if you look at anybody's research on meditation, it is radical. Um, from, the, from states of contentment and happiness, um, kind of subjective, subjective reports from people who begin meditating, myself included, to these really massive shifts on the collective level, when groups start meditating. Um, so let's see. I want to. <laughs> I want to start. Uh, I guess usually I read the bio last, but I want to. I want to start with Bob's bio and then uh, give a little bit more information on him, and then uh, do a couple of notes, and then we'll get started. Bob Roth is one of the most experienced and sought-after meditation leaders in America. Over the past 45 years, Bob has taught transcendental meditation to many thousands of people and is the author of the authoritative book on the subject entitled Strength and Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation, which was published in February of 2018 by Simon & Schuster. Bob currently serves as the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, a five o one c three charity, which has brought meditation to over five hundred thousand inner city youth in underserved c- schools in thirty five countries, to veterans and their families who suffer from post traumatic stress, and women and children who are survivors of domestic violence. Bob also directs the Center for Leadership Performance, another nonprofit, which is bringing meditation to fortune one hundred companies, government organizations and nonprofit charities. Bob is the host of the Sirius XM radio show "Success Without Stress," and has spoken about meditation to industry leaders at such gatherings as Google's I-Geist, Aspen Ideas Festival, Aspen Brain Conference, Wisdom 2.0, and Summit. When I met Bob, I, I started doing research about what he was up to. I've been um, I've been meditating for years and. I hadn't stumbled into transcendental meditation, but meeting him, he became my teacher in TM, and uh, it, it's it's a wonderful practice. It, it's um, as you can read or as you'll hear, it's it can be, and certainly has the uh, the potential to be if we would just do it. And that tends to be one of the big problems. Um, it has the capacity to be, if if we would do it, a, a transformative. Addition to our lives, and the the a friend of mine once said, "You know, I can't really tell you about it. Just do it. You'll you'll know. Um, you'll know the difference. Give it. Give it. You know, two three weeks." And I I reference a study that I <clears throat> I had read about how after um, you know, twenty seven minutes of meditation per day, um, and this is just what the study was citing. Uh, for a month begins to change structure of the brain. So uh, the, the study cited the uh, the amygdala gets a, a bit smaller and the frontal cortex gets a bit larger. The amygdala being involved in fight or flight and reactivity and the frontal cortex being involved in um, higher order processing. Uh, and that is such a simplistic way of looking at the brain, but regardless, that's, that's what the research says. So it, it's a, a benefit that's undeniable and today in the conversation, we'll do a bit of meditation, but really, it, we, we just go into kind of some of the... Bob's history, his his experience of meditation, and then where he has seen its impact in his life. And um, it's it's massive, the impact. So check out his book, Strength and Stillness. I, I, I read it. It's a wonderful read. And um, uh, for me, it was just a, a good reminder. And so I'm... I'm and, and I welcome <laughs> I welcome those reminders. Uh, another um, kind of after we did the conversation, I got an email from the David Lynch Foundation, and it went out to all their all the people that um, receive their information. And they've been rated as uh, by Charity Navigator with four stars, which is a a big honor. they've This organization has done so much. Uh, for 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 kids in particular um, but so much for many people. So check out the David Lynch Foundation. check out what they do and uh, and, and the, the what they do will speak for itself. It's undeniable. Uh, the other yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, today the as every podcast or the theme the theme music is from modern nations. you can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. The song of the week is by somebody <laughs> very close to me. It's my brother, Jeff Price. And, uh, and, and this song, <laughs> I, I, I keep wanting to use these songs from kind of an earlier music uh, life that I had. And, and this song in particular really stands out. I, Jeff had uh, was photographing, uh, doing some photography for the cover of the album, and I walked into our garage at the time, and there were all these shards of glass hung up by strings. And he had this whole—the <laughs> garage was done up as a as a whole studio. You know, he would converted it to get this one picture. And uh, so this album is is dear to my heart. Uh, I ended up playing bass for one of his shows. With this song in particular is uh, is fun to present today. Um, and I, I left a, a link for. Um, in the, the, the notes, the show notes, you can check a link for the iTunes um, link for him. Um, okay, what else? Uh, oh, the, the David Lynch Foundation. Get them at David Lynch, D A V I D L Y N C H Foundation, F O U N D A T I O N.org. Uh, and then any information on this podcast is at the sacredspeaks.com it's searchable on uh, twitter facebook instagram yeah i think that's it oh the other <laughs> the other thing is you know you do things like this and this podcast and you're helped by helped and supported by all kinds of people and as 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 small as it may seem i had a dear friend of mine when i was in colorado the past few weeks um my my friend tim white helped me <laughs> immensely. He uh he helped provide a piece of equipment that I needed in order to uh to record this this podcast in a comfortable way. So uh, and it just so happens he's uh, got a real um he's he's a very creative fella and he is uh I want to I want to let you know about him. timwhitestudio.com, T-I-M-W-H-I-T-E-S-T-U-D-I-O.com. I've got one of his pieces of artwork. Uh, he's a he's a very talented person, and uh, I'm I'm actually looking at one of his pieces of artwork in my office right now. Um, so I want to kind of tip the hat to Tim, and and uh, y- y- you'll be you'll be pleased, I imagine, with you check out the website. Uh, okay. Anything else? I don't think so. This is um, this conversation coming to you is is fun. It's enriching. I, I get to know Bob in a new way. Um, it's been about gosh seven years since I've known Bob, and uh, I've always been humbled and grateful for his um, his teaching, for his friendship, and uh, for who he is and what he does for people. I'm I I. I in my life I work as a child advocate and so anybody who's giving of their time and their their energy to help children, um, I have a, sp- a special place in my heart. I guess another thing is uh, through the conversation I need to out myself. Um, Bob's a dapper fella and uh, <laughs> it's, it's true the first time I met him. He's, you know, this well dressed guy, and uh, not not typical of the, of the me- of the, uh, not the image of the typical meditation teacher, and we, we kind of give mala beads a hard time, um, but if I'm if I'm being authentic, I I need, <laughs> I need to be honest here. I'm literally sitting about two feet from a. Um, uh, some some beads that are dear to my heart, so <laughs> and just in the spirit of authenticity um know that we're we're making a few jokes, but i'm uh <laughs> i'm I may actually lean a little heavier into the um uh, that uh that more typical um, image, so it gives me great pleasure to bring you this conversation and to introduce you to Bob Roth. For those of you who don't know him, for those of you who do already know how, uh, how great he is. So uh, I think that's it, and I'll leave it there and bring you Bob.
1: Let me just sit for one second. I'll do it with you. okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's nice
2: rock and rollville rock and roll man uh anybody who's listening to the podcast knows that i I'm, I'm pretty much laughing every at the beginning of every every episode because of uh all the good stuff that we could get into when we're not recording and i want to i want to <laughs> press record as quickly as possible so we're live bob and thanks a lot for being here i'm, I'm truly grateful
1: honored to be here John you're a great man
2: you're a sweetheart um so as I was saying earlier I read your book and it's it's been a really nice it's been nice to kind of catch up with you through those words and I, I when I think about our conversation today how to set this up I'd certainly want to get into the kind of nuts and bolts of you know what you what you did a lot in the book was talking about how this even works how your process works when you teach um, there there's some of the place setting I also think is necessary around your story and what got you into this because it really you lead, the way, <laughs> you lead the way I will okay good well and I, I'd also I'm like here to, to serve I'm I, here I'd, to serve I'd like to reserve a little bit of time to do what we just did would, would you mind maybe midway or maybe at the end of the conversation if we do a bit of a meditation well, okay good great because um, I just when you and when, when you were Teaching me um, the the first time, uh, like I heard, uh, you know, Oprah's commentary in your book that um, you know, there's something about this meditation approach that's so e- e- it's gentle. And I'm I'm I was coming I from a that. tradition of like very um, very intense Zen kind of a meditation, and to re- learn from you, it was like this. Oh my gosh, this is. I mean, he just told me I could go to sleep if I fall, fell asleep, which is. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the, the intelligent the body knows best what it needs. Yeah. So yeah. Okay.
2: Well, good. Well, let's let's go in. I wonder um, if we could just start. the The first thing that stands out to me, and, and, and I want to get into your story, is is on the jacket of the book you had. Um, I want to read this because I loved, I loved it. Um, next to this beautiful picture of you and your your dapper self. <laughs> um, 100% of the author's proceeds from the sale of Strength and Stillness are being donated, donated, donated to teach at-risk adults and youth to meditate. That's good stuff, man. So tell me, tell me yeah. that, I, I think when, when somebody does that, when you put yourself out there in that way, I want to know what's created this kind of person that, that makes a move like that, that gives back in the way that you give back.
1: I, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, I was born in Washington, D.C., but I moved to San Francisco. And my family, my parents were very political in the sense that we talked politics all of the time. I, my family was so political that I knew I was a Democrat before I knew I was Jewish. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> that was our religion. Politics was our, our religion being concerned about the welfare of others, being concerned about administ- you know, the administration of the local community, the government, because it impacted people's lives. And I was, you know, I was brought up middle class, slightly more than middle class, but certainly not hurting. And I was raised that if you have something, then you give back. So I uh, worked for Senator Bobby Kennedy on his presidential campaign for the Democratic nomination way back when, 50 years ago, <clears throat> and really loved being part. Of, it wasn't that he was a Democrat or Republican, but just loved being part of something big for social transformation. And when K- Bobby Kennedy was killed in, uh, on, the, the, on June 5th, 1968, it actually, John, devastated me in ways that I'd never felt before. It was like, this person represented something so big for me this was my mission. I, I decided to go. I went to Berkeley in 1968, University of California, Berkeley. I decided because of Bobby Kennedy that I would go to law school and become a U.S. senator like Bobby Kennedy. I am going to get to answer the question in a moment. Oh, but but no, you're, you're law answering school. the question. great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go to law school and become a U.S. senator and change the world. Yeah. Actually, those days we wanted to save the world because you had the Soviet Union and the whole thing. Yeah, big narrative. But did changed yeah, change the world, and I was at Berkeley for it couldn't have been more than a month or so when I realized because of the intense divisiveness, politics just engendered. And I believe you need political solutions to problems, and I'm an activist that way. But the idea that politics were going was gonna somehow heal the soul of the nation, which is what I wanted to do, just it, it was too much. It was just too much violence, too much divisiveness and too much victimizing. And so I thought, okay, politics isn't the way I'm going to put my young life energy to work as an 18-year-old. Maybe I'll do education. My mom was an educator. So I thought, I'll write educational curriculum. I'll get a doctorate in writing educational curriculum. I was really interested in working with young people, particularly in the inner cities and under-resourced schools. And so I thought, start, come up with a curriculum that will give kids the tools at an early age to be able to navigate a world that was not going to get anything but lip service from politicians i mean basically and po- and millions of kids were being sacrificed in you know in the altar of political expediency or power plays and while you do need political change for me uh, i thought there's other people to do that education so i'm going to school full time it's october 1968 i'm going to school full time i'm working full time there are army tanks parked out, you know, the first year of college anyway is insane. Army tanks parked outside my door because of the Vietnam War protests, and I was pretty darn stressed. And I was working, I had a job, I write about this in my book, and I had a job and there was one guy who I was working who was normal. I mean, he was a very cool guy, but he wasn't, I wasn't into wingy ding drugs, I wasn't into religious cults I was I I just wanted to make a better world I just you know like an activist let's just what am I what can I do and um I found out he did transcendental meditation took many months to find that out and as soon as I heard about it because of who he was regular guy down to earth kind smart self referral I asked him about it and he said we'll go find out about it and meditation wasn't even a word in my vocabulary at that time I was just, you know, 1968, 69 by that time. So I went to a lecture and I heard about it. I went to a talk on transcendental meditation. And I I remember at the end of the talk asking the teacher, there was this young woman, she was very kind. And I said, how much of this stuff, but I didn't say stuff. I said, shit, how much (laughs) of this stuff do I have to believe in, you know, arrogant 18 year old kid, do I have to believe in for it to work? And she held up a piece of chalk. And she let it go, and it fell into her hand and said, you don't have to believe in gravity for gravity to work. Transcendental meditation, we're hardwired for the experience of transcendence. And I want to talk, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. And you don't have to believe in anything. So I learned it the next day, skeptical still. And after one of my first experiences, John, the thought came to me, so this is what I, the tools I want to give a child in the inner city, in San Francisco or, or Oakland. So I continued to meditate, going to college, and then three years later, I studied with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and I became a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. And from the beginning, I went back to the San Francisco Bay Area, and I taught TM at San Quentin Prison, and I taught, this is 72, and I taught TM in inner city schools, and it's been my life's work. Bringing meditation to everyone, but particularly kids. So when I, had, when I was asked to write this book, now I'm answering your question. When I was asked to write this book, now 46 years later after becoming a teacher, I don't care about the money. I just wanted to use every penny I have to bring this to children. And now the David Lynch Foundation, I started the foundation with David Lynch 13 years ago. We provided scholarships for a million kids to learn to meditate for free all over the world.
2: That's where we stepped in together years ago was an interest in working with kids. And when I started reading the, after I first met you, I started reading all the literature that you guys were putting out there at the David Lynch Foundation. And I started meditating in, I think it's been about 12 years since I've began meditation. And as I was saying before, it was this kind of a more Zen Vipassana based practice that was pretty, it had a rigidity to it. And it's still judgmental. Yeah, it's 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 intense. There's an intensity and no no beef against that. There's certainly one pathway. But when I when I first met with you, it was all this stuff interwoven together that was there. This attitude of openness, but also activism. That you were really taking on something that I think is so powerful. And so let's let's go into that a little bit because I want to. We'll kind of meander and dip in back to your story. But you you started doing it a lot in the Bay Area with meditation. Could you fill in some of those blanks for me? Because that's actually where our story together picked up.
1: Well, uh, I mean, if you look at the effect, there's something called adverse childhood experience. It's called ACEs. And if a child has, and that can be a parent gets divorced. There's violence in the family. There's violence in the neighborhood. Someone in your family goes to prison. Almost like the norm for millions of kids in uh inner cities or just even in rural communities and if you have three adverse childhood experience ace aces because of the damage it does to the brain in terms of uh, the amygdala getting hyper aroused which is your reactivity center mm-hmm. and shutting down or or actually stunting the growth of the prefrontal cortex which is executive functioning you have three or more of those you're in a prison pipeline or you're in a pipeline for drug abuse drug 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 addiction or you're in a pipeline for just bad health health or obesity. And you really see that in the major cities, kids going to schools and the underserved schools in the major cities. So San Francisco, about 10 years ago, myself and a fellow named Laurent Balisek began offering it to the schools in San Francisco with um, the superintendent of those schools in full support. And we taught 5,000 kids to meditate, Transcendental Meditation. And they began and ended each school day with 10 or 15 minutes of meditation. And the transformation in what were the lowest performing schools in the district became among, not the highest, but among the highest performing schools within a year or two. And graduation rates went up, expulsion and suspension rates went way down. And you know, the other thing that was interesting, the students reported something that we've forgotten about in education. They said they were happier. We don't. We forget. Oh, no, oh you mean a child should be happy? As long yeah. as they get into Harvard, as long as they get into kindergarten, with it. So it was tremendous. And from San Francisco, in those quiet time schools, it spread to Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Washington DC, and now in Chicago, uh, there's a three year study going on with two thousand kids doing quiet time transcendental meditation, and that. St- st- shows a dramatic reduction in arrests for violent crime among the meditating students. And that, John, well, you could sort of go, "Uh uh-huh, big deal, but that's the big problem. Because during the summer, when these kids from these homes, broken homes, they're out of school, then they get arrested. That breaks up life for them and their whole, you know, the whole family. So 84% reduction in violent crime, arrests for violent crimes and a 50% reduction across the board for meditating students and if you have a 5 or 10% reduction in arrest through any other intervention you're happy about it so very dramatic radical
2: just absolutely yeah. and that that was the stuff this was back in 2012 and 13 when i was reading some of the early stuff and since then i mean after reading your book just it's almost uh, I don't know what word I want to use there, but it, it, it's incredible to notice the amount of research that's coming out in favor of these kinds of, you know, in quotations, interventions that are transforming these, these kids' and families' lives.
1: Yeah, and the funny thing is, to go back to our opening statement, um, this is where the real social transformation is, you know, that I wanted to do with Bobby Kennedy and 50 years ago, yeah. really giving a child, an adult, but a child, the tools to profoundly rise above his or her economic, social, health boundaries, imprisonment, that they don't, have to, it's not, they don't have to be a victim. Yes, we have to make changes in the healthcare system. Yes, we have to make changes in educational opportunities. Yes, we have to make changes, equal job opportunities, equal pay for women and men. All those things have to happen. But we don't have to leave these children to wallow in pain and trauma until that happens. And we actually give them the tools to become more activists themselves, not become, oh, meditation, they become passivists. No, more directed, give them more of an edge, change the world, give them the energy to do it. So it's very satisfying for me at this time, 50 years later, to see these kinds of things taking place.
2: Well, oh, it's got to be. Y'all are doing such great work. Uh, you're, you said something that was, you know, when I was in I was in New York City and I was at a, a social gathering and I was talking to all these new people and one of these guys I was chatting with was on Wall Street and I would mentioned that I did meditation and he, this kind of, it, my perspective then, this unlikely candidate to be meditating, was meditating and doing it regularly. So when you're, as you're writing, the people that you bring in throughout your book to support this work are some pretty heavy hitters. Then these are folks that are high achieving that are very engaged in life that that do activist work. And so there's there is that kind of nice image of the meditation being meditation being this very relaxing and passive um approach of passivity. And that's not the take that you get when you read the book. I mean, we're talking about alertness and energy and engagement and
1: um Well, the roots of this is- Thousands over 5,000 years ago, this meditation has its roots in the warrior classes of ancient times, and this is you know hand to hand combat. And these are the times, you know, among the noble or the righteous warriors, where it wasn't like today you push a button on a drone and you, you couldn't fight out of anger, fear, jealousy, revenge, you didn't want to fight. You wanted to make peace. It wasn't some macho thing that I'm going to crush you because I'm bigger and stronger and taller or whatever. And so we're all warriors. Uh, A father or mother is a warrior, meaning that you are going to bat for your children. You're going to bat for your family. You believe in your family. And the warriors, at least where the tradition of meditation, this meditation comes from, was a righteous profession. And all of us, in that sense, when we get up in the morning and we have to go to work and we or we have to go to school and there's tremendous odds against us. And if we have anger, revenge, jealousy, fear, any of those things, we lose. We lose the battle. But if we're smart, we're calm inside, we're peace loving, but we've got a boatload of energy and focus. And we, if we need to strike, we can strike, but we don't strike out not out of fear or anger or fatigue, but out of stress, you know, like, well, that's what's needed. There's ignorance here. We need to do something. So that's one thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say is I think it's time that the whole branding around me- meditation has this branding of, oh, it's for hippies or it's for pacifists or it's for, I mean, I, I was sort of, uh, you know, I went to Berkeley. <laughs> but it's really for everybody. Yeah, And to have that it's for everybody and I'm we have an office on Capitol Hill and I'm teaching Republicans and Democrats and It's making people be um, I mean, there's people who by their nature are conservative, but they're not bad people There are bad people who are conservative. They're bad people who are liberal mm-hmm. I mean just in the in their way they treat their family and friends, but they become more thoughtful more balanced less reactive and so I like the idea of, uh, here's a destructive word, demolishing that, that affectation around meditation, that somehow you have to be a certain way in order to meditate. No, you have to be a human being. And it's, there's no philosophy with transcendental meditation. There's no, does the self exist? Does the self not exist? And all, it's just, here's a technique, learn it, access that ocean of silence and peace and, and creativity that lies within get rid of stress and be your best higher self. That's it.
2: I have actually never heard that about the warrior piece, and that really resonates. It may be just cuz where we are right now it's it's hard we as a culture it's hard not to become pretty active and want to be willing to hazard yourself in favor of something greater than yourself. And
1: Well, go on, please. Go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. No, just
2: just the for me, that kind of, I think the warrior thing gets misinterpreted and misappropriated a lot because the kind of warrior that we're talking about is like the way of the peaceful warrior right I mean that's yeah. the, 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 the warrior who's able to designate their energy in a particular direction at, at will and not be overtaken by things like their own anger or jealousy or whatnot.
1: Right and the the, the, the most powerful warrior of ancient times was one who didn't have an enemy and he didn't have an enemy because he was a righteous soul or she was a righteous soul who didn't who didn't create duality who didn't create fear who didn't create oppression they were great leaders and they were leaders that wanted to uplift everyone so their true peace it's a funny thing with the UN sending in peacekeeping forces which is basically just to suppress violence mm-hmm. you know they're just sending in troops to suppress violence largely but in the ancient times, the idea was that if you had enough people meditating in a village or meditating in a country, the influence of their meditation, and I'm not talking about praying, but the, the calming influence of their, and the enlivening influence of their meditation actually reduced the violence and the stress in the whole of society. So the military leaders, military people, just by who they were, maintained a peaceful environment in the world in their community. So it's a different environment, but I just go back to that point. We're all, when you get up in the morning, someone listening to this thing, if you don't think of the warrior as someone who's killing somebody, but someone who stands up for what they believe in and is focused on what they believe in and is not a victim and finds a way to be successful without damaging or hurting other people, that is the you know ancient definition of a warrior. And I just want to go back to this one point about the branding. Um, mm-hmm. I'll name drop here for a moment. I mean, I teach tens of thousands and thousands of inner city school kids, but sometimes I get invited, as you know, to, to teach well-known celebrity type actors. Sure. So I got a phone call from Tom Hanks that he wanted to learn to meditate. So I, well, I said, okay, I went over to his house and I was just dressed. You know, I had jeans and a sport coat on and shirt. And he opened the door and he was shocked. And I said, what's that all about? He said, well, I expected you to be wearing yoga pants and have a man bun. And I
0: said, 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 well, if if I was a,
1: yeah, no, yeah. But it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to have this look, you know, a meditation teacher has a look. And I said, well, if your cardiologist was coming over to your house, you wouldn't think that. And I really think that we need to just take away the boundaries of what a meditation teacher looks like. Like who eats organic these days? Everybody. It's not just people like (laughs) I was, you know, anyway, you got the point. I'll stop talking. You ask another question.
2: No, it's, it's a, it's a good point you're talking about because your influence, I think the thing that I'd like to pull out there is your, your point about how you teach all these inner city kids how to meditate, but then, and also you're serving a, a different population altogether, and so that that's what I meant. this reach that you've got it it's it kind of knows no boundaries. You know this tool is something that you don't you can just take it with you. You can meditate yeah. at a stoplight in you know a, a, probably not there, maybe a bad place to do it, but you can meditate certainly waiting in a waiting room or in your house in a, that's it's like it's like soccer. You know, like the world plays soccer because it doesn't cost all that much money to get a ball and then put up a couple of pins and kick the ball between yeah. it. So it's accessible to everybody. But it, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a tough that, road to hoe here.
1: I mean, that... Well, the interesting thing is, just from the standpoint we're talking about, um, I, I went, several years ago, I went to my 40th high school reunion. And there were people that I was at my high school with who were really activists, political activists. They were really into it at that time, you know, Bay Area in 1967, 68. And I saw them and I was so sad because they were all beat up. They were all defeated, they'd given up because the the, um, losses or the failures or the lack of, you know, had just gotten to them. So they either started taking drugs or alcohol or they just went and made Mm -hmm. a ton of money, gave up on that. And they would just look like beaten people. And I think what's allowed me to do what I do for so long is the meditation gives me the resilience to be an activist and not just for a day or a week, a month or a year or five years, but for now almost 50 years and feel better and more energetic today than I did even 50 years ago. And I count that to meditation, to transcendental meditation. I think it gives you the energy and the resilience to 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 do the work you need to do in the world to change the world.
2: Well, anybody who knows you, Bob, knows that your uh, your energy and presence is evidence enough of how the <laughs> <laughs> of, of how this, you know, this <laughs> quote works. <laughs> so, um, you, you, I don't. The, the little thing that's kind of has 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 emerged out here that I didn't anticipate was you talking about kind of the origin of this kind of meditation, thousands of years old. And it's always been a joke that we kind of quote Westerners. <laughs> now that we can validate sci- scientifically that meditation works, it's like we're, we're proving what's been proved by experience for thousands of years. And so what, what kind of
1: things have big have- news? It's important to eat fruits and vegetables. <laughs> big <food. laughs> Science proves yeah.
2: it. I like, I like, uh, I, I heard at some point, Michael Pollan say something like, uh, yeah, here I'll sum up diet for you. Eat, um, eat real food uh just so just enough small bits mainly vegetables and fruit and maybe we can add to that and spend about 20 to 40 minutes in silence every day with yourself and that that may be the yeah. equation to a pretty damn good
1: life and i think that that it's just balance and i think it's so important for parents to do it who have children because they send an example a model to their children that oh mommy or daddy interrupts this crazy world of all these demands to go off for 20 minutes and be quiet and and become not just quiet and do nothing, but really access that power that lies within so that they're kinder, better mommy and daddies, but more effective at what they do and are happier around the kids. And kids growing up with that, I teach a lot of people these days in their 20s and 30s who say, You know, my parents meditated growing up, and I thought it was just completely weird. But now I understand what they're doing, and it's not a foreign idea to them.
2: That's what makes it. uh, My son, when he was, I mean, he must have been like a year and a half or two years old. I was meditating, and he climbed up into my lap, and at first I felt kind of, bothered, you know, he was kind of messing with my, my, my present time. And then I thought, well, oh my gosh, this is just like what happens in my mind. I get distracted. So let me move him into my meditation. And he sat there. I mean, like this two-year-old for like five minutes. Wow. It was awesome. But my, you know, where I showed you earlier here, we sit, I'm, I'm, I know you're in New York. I'm at the base of a mountain in Colorado. Actually,
1: I'm in the Hamptons right now. So Oh I yeah, got no the problem. Hamptons.
2: Okay. You're, you're good. You got some good beach. So I, uh, my wife and I just went for a walk with our daughter and that was our conversation. Like I said, man, I mean, I'm reading Bob's book. It's a great reminder. I'm, I feel more energized and invigorated to expand my practice a bit. Cause what I've done is like 30 minutes in the morning and just kind of left it at that. And now what I'm going to do is do 20 minutes in the morning. But as soon as I get home, meditate with my son, which we've done on and off most of his life, but we just haven't, you know, things, things fall to the side.
1: Great for your kids to see you take this seriously. Yeah, it really great is great for your kids, it, not just for yourself. Great for them to see that that you take this a priority. It, that that will be ingrained in the and in their brain circuitry. Oh, this is normal. Yeah, this is normal. Yeah. What kind it's of values?
2: Gift. What kind of values do my my caregivers live out in their lives? And yeah. while I may not get it, or while I may not even like it. It's interwoven into the fabric of somebody's reality when they when they see the. And there'll be a time.
1: Them. Yeah, there will be a time when it dawns on them.
2: Well, so, uh, so let's go kind of into meditation for a second. The you mentioned the three forms of meditation in your book. Would you speak for a bit about these three and just kind of talk about sure. what people are exposed to?
1: So when I explain meditation, I like to use an analogy of an ocean, which you know I said you're on a little boat and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and. You get these 30, 40, 50 foot waves, huge waves all around you, and you could think the whole ocean is an upheaval. I talked about this before in the book. Mm-hmm. But if you do a cross-section of the book, you realize you got these little 30-foot waves, but the ocean, as I said, the ocean is a mile deep, and that the surface of the mind, surface of the ocean is active by its nature, but the depth of the ocean is silent by its nature. So that is our understanding of the mind. The purpose of meditation throughout time has been to bring equanimity and calm and focus and clarity and, and peace and power to the mind. And according to science, there are three basic approaches. One is called focused attention, which is a concentration form of meditation. The other is called open monitoring, which is an observational or mindfulness approach. And the other is called self-transcending, which trans- includes transcendental meditation. And in the first focused attention The idea is to create a calm in the ocean Well, the waves are the disruptor of the calm. The waves disrupt a calm ocean. They're the enemy of calm. So stop the waves on the surface of the ocean, and then you've got a calm ocean. So that's focused attention. There are vipassana. There are types of meditation Mm -hmm. where you try to clear the mind of thoughts. And that creates something called gamma brain waves, which not to be too technical, but it's 20 to 50 cycles per second, often in the prefrontal cortex on the left side, and that is focus. you're concentrating when you're working on writing something or're solving a problem or balancing your checkbook, you've got the gamma waves going. The second is called open monitoring, as I said, and that's an observational that's okay, here are the waves I'm not I don't have to stop the waves, but I'm just going to observe the waves rise and fall and not get too excited about the wave, the wave that gets too high or due to breast if the wave gets too low. and there. For many of these approaches, the thought itself is not the enemy. It's the content of thought. So if you have a thought about a guy named Joe, and you don't know anybody named Joe, doesn't do yeah, anything. Whatever. Yeah. But if Joe done you wrong yesterday or two months ago or 20 years ago and Joe's name comes up,
2: you're pissed. Yeah. So
1: in these this op- open monitoring, it's just to uh, emotionally sort of dispassionately observe the rise and fall, the, the thought of Joe, and not get lost in the past or the future. And so that helps bring equanimity. And that creates something called theta brain waves, which are five to seven cycles per second. It's like an onset of dream. The third, as I said earlier, transcendental meditation, is we don't mind the thoughts on the surface. They're natural. There's environmental conditions that cause the waves. There's environmental conditions that create my thoughts about my children, my job, my family, all these different things. In transcendental meditation, we access a field of calm that lies deep within every human being. Right now, John, everyone who's listening to this show, there's a level of the mind deep within where your mind is already completely settled and peaceful and calm. And Transcendental meditation gives access to that effortlessly through the use of a mantra, which is a word or a sound that has no meaning, taught by a A teacher as I taught you. And when you access that calm, quiet, peaceful level where the mind is naturally that way, your whole brainwave pattern becomes something called alpha one, which is eight to 10 cycles per second. And that is a state of deep inner calm, but wide awake. And it spreads coherently across the whole brain. So your whole brain is communicating with with itself. And one last thing. If any, you or me or any of our listeners, your listeners know the word cortisol, it's a stress hormone that's secreted by the adrenal glands when we're worried about something. And if you get a good night's sleep, cortisol levels will drop 5 to 10%. And in 20 minutes of TM, cortisol levels drop 30 to 40% every time. So it just shows the body is rebooting itself and has its own innate way of healing itself and revitalizing itself. So transcendental meditation does not involve any stopping of the waves on the surface. They say, "Fine, waves are part of the ocean. I'm just going to settle down and access the silence that lies within." That makes sense.
2: It makes perfect sense, but it, it's just, and I know it personally. have I mean, ex- I've experienced that. I, I know that, um, and in, in fact, one of the. I read a study recently that was saying if you can do about 27 minutes of meditation per day, the size of the amygdala begins to go down a little bit and the the prefrontal cortex expands a little bit and I actually lead a retreat with a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist and she was like, I don't know if that's true find me the study and I did I, you know, I found it and it was uh, it seems to be it has, there, there are very concrete changes. No, oh, yeah. I mean, this.
1: even with this whole, there's a whole thing that's interesting about, can we talk about creativity in the brain for a second? Please. <laughs> that's okay. a favorite topic. So they used to think about creativity. They used to think about creativity that there was a region of the brain. Oh, you're a right hemisphere person, so you're the creative abstract thinker. Oh, you're a left hemisphere person, you're the... The right hemisphere is the artist. The left hemisphere is the scientist, the mathematician. Yeah, Focus. Sure. Well, it turns out that that's not true. It turns out that the two re- it's, it, creativity doesn't lie in a region, a region of the brain. It lies in networks. Right. And that means connect connectivity, cert, brain circuit, brain brain circuits between different parts of the brain. And the what's involved in creativity. One part is called the prefrontal cortex. That's the attention network Mm -hmm. that's executive functioning that's as if putting pen to paper writing the thing down making it happen the other part of the brain is called the default mode network that's a connection to all parts of the brain also called the imagination network and during that process that's where you're brainstorming john that's where your your blue sky that's where you're sort of saying talking to your wife and say okay let's envision where do we want to be in five years No editing, no critic, just let's just blue sky here. And that is, and that happens, that gets awakened when you're taking a hot shower sometimes Mm -hmm. or when you're going for a walk or, you know, going on vacation. The the default mode network, the imagination network awakens. Stress shuts down both. Too much stress shuts down the executive functioning. You can't think clearly in any no good judgment, no planning. Stress also shuts down or suppresses the default mode network. Now, your imagination, you're not thinking creatively. If we're not stressed, most people have either one or the other. They're either focused on something, front of the brain, or they're, blue, they're imagining blue sky. One or the other is on. The most creative people in the world that they've done research on have them both functioning harmoniously and simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens with TM when we transcend when we access that silence that lies within it awakens both the default mode network the, or the imagination network and the attention network and those are the type of people that when you're i like to think of a comedian who's on stage and and he or she has, has their 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 pattern and then somebody from the audience thro- you know says something they pivot and they make a jo- they can just they can think on their feet they can be creative on their feet a problem comes up, they can adjust. And that's another thing that, that transcendental meditation does. Mindfulness meditation, because it's more of a concentration form, actually shuts down the default mode network. So it, it stops it. It, fo- it does awaken the frontal lobe, but it stops that because you're concentrating. You're not, you're not blue sky. Whereas you know with TM, it's an effortless practice, and your mind can sort of go where it goes.
2: Bob, you're speaking like a neuroscientist. You've and I know. From, well, I wrote a book. I, I, <laughs> I a lot of books <laughs> I know yeah. from the book, like you've uh, you've interacted with a bunch of. of Was that people. too
1: abstract? Was that too too? No, much no, no, detailing? no. I,
2: to, I, I say that because I want to go deeper into that. Because that's yeah, good. that's, that's one thing that I've really enjoyed about your work is that you. Speaking of the both and. You know, I, and I think that's one thread that's running through our conversation is that, you know, uh, the dressed in orange turban uh, Malabid guy and the kind of hardcore laboratory science guy, you smash those together and you've got a lot of what you, the David Lynch Foundation has been doing regarding transcendental meditation is it's it is connected with compassion and connection and children's sense of well-being and possibility. But there's also real, really concrete evidence to support uh, what you've been doing, and a couple of names come to mind. They're they're not the the that you referenced in the book. These MDS and uh, PhDs who've been kind of riding along this path for many years. Please go into as much of that as you want to, because I love that stuff.
1: Well, one thing I want to I want to add here that I think is is interesting is that I th- also think there's been a lot of siloing. Oh, I do vipassana, so I don't do this, or I do mindfulness, so I don't do TM. As if They're mutually exclusive. And I think siloing is never good. (laughs) I think you can go deep. You don't want to jump around. You can go deep in a path. I've been practicing TM for almost 50 years, 20 minutes twice a day. But there are mindful practices, body scans, things like that, that I've learned along the way that come in handy in the middle of the day. And so in a they call feeling the body or something. In, in your toolbox, there are many tools. So if a person is listening to this and saying, oh, this guy thinks TM is the only way, I don't think TM is the only way. I think it's a very powerful tool, perhaps the most effective for transcending, for experiencing that silence that lies within. But if there's two o'clock in the afternoon and things are getting tense, or maybe you have an exam at school or you, get your, you have a lot of roughness at work, Boy, to be able to do some body feeling or some body scan to calm you down or a breathing thing, we need everything we can do. I just recommend that it be evidence-based and not just be sort of casual and somebody somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who's got a shingle out and is trying to make some money off of the meditation fad that is genuine. But I, I really think if there's proof that it works, people should explore it.
2: That may be one of the secrets... Because you you are a both and guy, you know. Yes, the, and I'm a yes and. Yeah,
1: it's not an either or. It's a yes and.
2: Yeah, and that that may be why so many people have been attracted attracted to you know not only what you're talking about but who you are. I mean, you're a, you're a, you're pretty you're you're definitely a good uh, leader in that in this movement. You know, as somebody well, who's just, not wearing yeah. the beads and doing all that stuff.
1: This is not necessary. That, that beads and even Maharishi, he said, I mean, when he began, he was a physicist in India. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is the one who brought TM to the world in the late 50s. And he was a physicist in India before he had a chance to study with his teacher, Gurudev, and he studied for 13 years. And then he started traveling around India and people hated him. He was a radical. He said, no, 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 meditation's for everybody. It's not just for the people wearing the orange robes. And it's not just after you've been a celibate monk for 10 years. And then maybe we'll teach you the first stages of meditation. And it's not untouchables can't learn. No, it's every human being's birthright. And not only it's not difficult, there's nothing you have to believe in. Anyone can do it. The most skeptical person, again, you don't have to believe in gravity for, you know, for for a, a telephone or a chalk to drop. So I think and that's why I always loved about this. I loved i also, you know I know that TM got a reputation oh it's just about money which is false. Um, oh it's it's a, it's a whatever, but I think that's changing. I think it's I, changing. Would you address I that criticism
2: cuz I, I that's that is the one you hear, right? That that oh it's proprietary oh, and there's cost, this kind of
1: Yeah. That's right. The thing is people say well why can't you you know, why can't you teach it out of a book. I mean, uh, uh, online, why can't you, why can't it be taught, uh, learned out of a book? And I said, there's gazillions of meditations that are taught that way. You don't need just another transcendental meditation to actually transcend in that analogy of the ocean to actually access that silence that lies within effortlessly has always utilized for thousands of years. You have your own teacher and I'm your teacher for life. Anytime you ever have any question about anything, I stop anything. I'm your teacher. And that's the way it has always been. So the idea of having a mentor or a coach or a teacher, you know, we want our child to learn how to swim. You have a teacher. You want your child or you want to learn how to play violin or something. You have a teacher. Do better in math. You have a teacher. So the tradition of a teacher is there. So Transcendental Meditation is taught one-to-one with a teacher in order to support in order for the teacher to support himself or herself then a course fee is asked at the time of instruction if the person can afford it if they can't afford it just like schools there's grants loans scholarships and if a person has no money then they talk to the David Lynch foundation and they can apply for it to be for free you learn for free yeah. so so the so the thing is is it It's there. The money is asked to help support the organization, but it's not as an obstacle to learning. It's to sustain it so that your teacher is available to you for the rest of your life. And proprietary just means there's a lot of people who will, well, you know, this they will rip off anything. They'll say, Oh, I'm teaching transcendental meditation or I'm teaching mindfulness or I'm teaching Vipassana. And people go to them with very genuine needs. I can't sleep. I've got an ulcer. I've you know, I'm concerned about my child and I'm coming to learn vipassana, or I'm coming to learn transcendental meditation, and it's taught by a phony. Well, time is wasted. Maybe that person now thinks meditation doesn't work, and then they go to taking a bunch of drugs. So proprietary just means we're safeguarding the effectiveness of the technique.
2: I, I relate with this criticism, at least as a psychotherapist a lot, because there are Oftentimes, when people will say, "Ah, oh, you don't really care. You're just doing this because I'm paying you." And there's a the thing that I that I have learned is that, and a friend of mine actually passed this along to me. I liked it so much. He said, "Look, you pay me for my time, not my learning, all, all the things that I've invested in, not my consideration, not my compassion, not my interest, not my genuine curiosity about who you are and what you what you're about. But certainly, you pay me for my time because we've got to be in the yeah. world and." Part of being in the world is making money
1: and all those things. There's no price. They can put it on your experience, your compassion, your kindness. It's priceless, but helping you pay your rent, helping you raise your children right. that you can, there's something that you can pay for. And the same with TM, there's no way you can put a price on TM. If it does everything transcendental meditation, if it does what it's said to do, but there is a price that can be paid. There's a, you just learn to meditate at a center and this, young person has a family and is trying to put them to school through school and take them on vacation and their profession is teaching meditation so i also think that's part of this getting rid of this i think uh, an affected notion that somehow money is bad money's not bad for you <laughs> right. money actually enables you to be who you yeah. are yeah you know it, it it's only bad if a person has a weakness inside but so hopefully if you're a great psychotherapist like you or if you're a great meditation teacher money stays keeps in its own proportion it doesn't take over your life it enables you to live your life.
2: Well I think you you actually hit that right there. It people have really negative interpretations and associations with money and it, it really from a from a jungian lens we call that a complex you know everybody's got a money complex and that will inform yeah. whether they're trying to get it to the ex- exclusively to the exclusion of all other values in life. Or if they're actually pushing it away because they believe it to be demonic or somehow evil or something. And and really I, I would suggest anybody with that kind of commentary inside, just take an honest look at your associations with money and try to figure out why they are. There.
1: They have that statement that said, yeah, there's the statement, well, money is the root of all evil, but the quote wasn't money is, it was love of money is the root of all evil. Yes. And that's like addiction to money is yeah. the root of all evil. That's right. Not not money. Money's a tool. Money's energy, you know. Money is money. Yes, yeah, an image. So anyway. Yeah, and so anyway, but that's changing now. But we do the David Lynch Foundation does want to. We're working in Washington D.C. to try and and get uh, TM to be covered by the Veterans Administration for all 21 million veterans to learn to meditate at no charge through the SAMSA, which is the Substance Abuse uh, Department of the of the government to ha- help all these kids and adults who are. Suffering from substance use disorder, including mm-hmm. opioid addiction, I mean all these different areas we're working on those so that there is no obstacle on any level for a person learning to meditate
2: well and i I knew when I started my early graduate work, it was almost exclusively on addiction and meditation, and so i've I've read a lot of that material and there the with regard to substance abuse it's needs to i think be one of the primary interventions that's That's used. You had so many good stories about working with San Quentin with, uh, with meditation.
1: Yeah, that I remember, um, my dad was a doctor. I grew up in Marin County and he used Marin Marin County now says hoity toity place, but those days it was just rural. And, um, and he volunteered once a week at San Quentin prison. So we used to go there as a 10 or 12 year old, we used to go there and eat. They they had a, uh, A cafeteria for the staff so we'd get to go eat at the San Quentin cafeteria and we were served by inmates and all my friends in sixth grade thought that was like the coolest thing to do to go to San Quentin prison and then it was interesting because 12 years later I was back teaching helping to teach TM to inmates on death row and the guards who are also behind bars in a way you know they're behind those walls and did you know this number the the Guards, ha- prison guards have to retire at the age of 53, and their average lifespan is two years after, after retirement. They die of a heart attack, drug abuse, something like that. Two years. It's worse than the NFL. Yeah, it's terrible. So we're offering it to both sides. Yeah, it's terrible, terrible. It's, it's a hellhole. I mean, here these guys are behind bars. These guys are on the other side of the bar, but they're still locked in by walls everywhere, and the stress levels and the fear of life and death. Is, anyway, it's it's a hellish existence. Well, you're.
2: It's it, it, something I've kind of been thinking about a lot lately. Is that you? You had an activist nature. You really wanted to do something to change the world and be yep. a part of the the transformation. And you you found meditation, and that was a, a vehicle through which you
1: could do that. Yeah, my dharma, my path, my the, dharma.
2: Well, the other, the other happens a lot too. I mean, that, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is when you start, when a person starts meditating, they tend to find things that connect them with, connect them with the world and they want to do something to make a difference. And, and you know, if you could speak a little bit about that, because I think you're hitting on the, these themes of like discipline, but also creativity and then compassion, I think is a big one that we want to get into.
1: Well, yeah, I think that um, the word Dharma, d h a d h a r m a means that activity, Sanskrit word means that activity which you do that ener- I, that energizes you, that makes you feel more energetic at the end of the action than when you started. Whereas something that's not your Dharma means you feel drained, depleted, we less than. Now, you can have a dharmic relationship. And if it's dharmic, that means in that relationship, you feel stronger, fuller, wholer. You can have a relationship that makes you feel flattened and insecure and weak. Food can be dharmic. You can eat food that makes you feel healthy and good, that fresh food. You can have food that makes you feel dull and dead. To know what food you should eat, to know what relationships you want to be attracted to, requires the ability to hear your, we like to say, inner voice. Mm-hmm. That quiet, deep side of you that tells you, gives you a sense of when something's right and when something's not right. And that has to be an internal experience. There's a uh, a beautiful um, statement that I'm going to go on for just a moment here. But one time Maharishi Maharishi was asked by a reporter, what's the single most important quality a person needs to live a healthy, successful, happy, fulfilling life? And I thought happiness, compassion, love. And he said discernment, the ability to make the choice, the right choices. Because you make the right choice. Isn't that great? It's great. (laughs) You make the right choice. And you eat that food, it makes you feel good. You make the wrong choice, you eat the wrong food. You make the right choice, you're in a relationship that's sustaining and evolutionary. You make the wrong choice and you're caught in this horrible whirlpool, cesspool. So that ability to make discernment. And that comes from... So that's one thing. Also in the Bhagavad... I'm almost done here. In the Bhagavad Gita, it talks about um, the resolute intellect. And the see the intellect is what decides. The mind just thinks a million thoughts, but your intellect says, "I'm going to do this and not that." Here's ten choices. of I'm at a buffet, here's ten types of foods I could eat. Six of them I know aren't good for me, but doesn't matter. I got to eat or whatever. But and so there's ten. So I'm ten choices, and the intellect says that one. That's the one I want, and that intellect. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, resolute intellect. It's described as a candle in a windless place, like a cave. The candle doesn't, the flame doesn't flicker. It knows, I should not eat that. I should not, not even a doubt. I should not go there. I should not be around that person. It's not a difficult, it's just resolute. And so, this whole thing of clear thinking, And a good intuition. And and for that, that's where meditation comes in, not just handy, necessary. Because it says, you know yourself in meditation. And then you do what you know to be right. And you don't do what you know to be wrong. You want that for your kids. Your kids, when they go to school, they're going to be given all sorts of people. They're going to come across kids. All sorts of things you want them to know. You, you, You train them as best you can and you send them off and you hope they make the right choices. And so that, I think, is what the meditation does first and foremost. Then, the quality of compassion, clear thinking. They describe in the ancient meditation text, an enlightened person is a person who has a cool mind and a warm heart. Mm. A cool mind and a warm heart. And that's a balanced human being. That's a fully developed person who just thinks coolly, clearly, knows what's right, and loves and compassionate towards all. Yeah, not, that was not, a long outs- answer.
2: not out, no, it was a perfect answer. Not outsourcing. Um, we tend to outsource a lot today. Um, you know, we, we because of accessibility, we can go very easily to the wherever, you know, where we're going to give our information. And we're really kind of disconnected from that is what we call inner voice. I think, I think that's a, discernment man that's a good <laughs> Isn't that good that's great
1: yeah it's so great it's i love so that great <laughs> another thing that maharishi said was really great when he said uh, it's completely different but he said see the job do the job stay out of the misery yeah i love that just you know there's just there's just messiness everywhere yeah you have your dharma you know what you want to do just see it do it. Just don't get caught up in all the spider web of stickiness. You know, just do what's right. I love that, too. But, but discernment is like, I think about that all the time.
2: Let's, let's get into another disc for a second. I'm, and I'm aware of our time. I want to be sensitive, so we'll, we'll start closing out in a bit. A related word is discipline. Could could you speak a little bit about that? Uh, how that's involved in your own practice, but what you've seen the struggles that people have in disciplining themselves to meditate. What are the roadblocks?
1: It's not easy. I'm not, it's not an easy thing. Um, it's really sort of. I think you have to. You have to. When it comes to twenty minutes twice a day, I, I was talking to someone they said who was meditating regularly and they said well there's 1440 minutes in a day and we're talking about 40 you know out of 1440 minutes and another person I talked these are just things he said I, I'll find the 40 and the first 20 minutes he just gets up 20 minutes earlier yeah and so no one even knows instead of getting out of bed at 6 he gets out of bed at 540 and it's better than sleep, TM is better than sleep anyway, in terms of rest and rejuvenation. And then the afternoon meditation, what he does is he sets it in his schedule the night before. He looks at where he has a window anytime from noon until, you know, ideally before dinner sometime. And he said, this one fellow said, when he tried to think of meditation as, and he was an investor, As time management for himself, he said he's horrible, just horrible at time management. But he said he looked at it as energy management. If I can invest 20 minutes at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, what is it going to do to the next six, seven hours that I'm with my friends, my family? What's it going to be for my night's sleep? How is it going to impact that? So it's actually like almost a 14-hour benefit from 20 minutes of meditating in the afternoon. So I think it's just sort of like a little mind game you have to set with yourself until your brain, because it takes three weeks, John, for, they say, for your brain to adapt to a new schedule or a new routine or a new habit for those brainwave circuits. Yeah. And so I tell people, just decide, I'm going to do this 20 minutes twice a day for a week. And then I'm going to consider if I'm going to re-up it after a week, but don't make it into a giant, for the rest of my life, it's just too much. But just, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes twice a day for a week, no excuses. And then my fam- I let my family know ahead of time, I'm going to do it. And then after a week, I say, do I want to do that again? Do I want to do it for another week? Do it for another week. And within two or three weeks, everybody notices and you notice, and you have much more time in the day. Yeah. So the discipline of meditating regularly, I think, has to start with baby steps but then, once your brain tastes, and your body tastes, and your mind t- and heart tastes that bliss, that kindness, that softness, that power, that energy, why would you not? You know, we always we're traveling all over the place. There's always there's always some place to get food. There's always a bed, so there can be a chair to meditate for twenty minutes.
2: But I guess, Bob, the thing that I think about when I, as I've been kind of contemplating having this conversation with you is that you've figured out a way in your life to make your life about living something that is a core value you and if anything it's you're able to live out many core values but you find a a professional and personal vocation that kind of fills all the buckets and you know and that's that's a dharma in and of itself and that you know finding that path to um to quicken the energy and to to bring more aliveness and so i I, there's also something in 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 you have
1: that too you're an extra you're an extraordinary communicator you're a person who's rooted deep in your own truth you i noticed that you care deeply about others and i'm you know almost 68 i've been at this a long time It the dharma refines itself, get gets more in the groove. So you just keep going. You just you just keep doing what you know to be right, and don't do what you know to be wrong. and And make meditation a priority, and then it will be revealed to you from inside. It will never come. And you. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to be so cloudy or stressed that you miss opportunities. Yeah. You know, it's like you miss it, it on the on the on the g p s okay, I missed that turn off because i wasn't paying attention well i 'm going to get another turn off, but it's another twenty miles down the road. Well, it just takes more time there's going to be other ways to turn off, but you missed the one that was right in front of you would have saved you a lot of time besides which a much prettier drive so'm <laughs> i I'm just being alert
2: well, so I know we've got to uh we've got to close out, and I think on a a personal level i just i just love chatting with you and seeing your face and being able to let's do it again uh, to let's connect again i'd love to yeah let's so do it again would you um would you close us out with a meditation could we do like a little yeah. three minute
1: yeah so in this people have their own meditation practice if you have a mantra and you do tm then you know how to do that if, if you um don't have that The one thing that I would like to say is, I'm not an advocate of trying to clear your mind of thoughts or focus your mind or concentrate on anything. I think that is tiring. I would rather you just sit quietly, eyes open or eyes closed. You can follow your breath if you want, breathe in through your nostrils, out through your mouth, just softly. But final thing I'd say before we do that is, but take meditation seriously take the advice of our friend, John, you know, look seriously at at a meditation practice. If it's transcendental meditation, fine. If it's something else, fine. If you're doing a technique and you're finding that you don't like it or it's hard to do, or it's not producing results, then don't think that's all, all meditations are like that. Keep looking. And if you have a question about TM, you can email me. I'm going to give you my email address personal it's bob at david lynch bob at david lynch if you have a question about this meditation and that is actually my email goes directly to me and i will answer your question so this is fine to do this thing but i really want you to do something take it more seriously so let's we'll close the eyes and then wait about a half a minute and then just begin to just sit comfortably. Do your TM if you have that practice or do something, but just easy, easy, easy for about three minutes. I'll keep the time. Don't mind the time. take about 30 seconds and then open the eyes slowly. Take your time. Thank you, buddy boy.
2: Oh, thank you, Bob. I'm really grateful that you're, uh, you're a teacher and that you've taught me. Thanks for teaching me today.
1: And I'm really grateful you're doing all that you're doing. You're a, a bright light in this world. And people who listen to your show are very fortunate. I mean that absolutely. As you know, I'm, I'm well, A very honest person. I don't exaggerate even in the slightest. I think you're one of the most exceptional people that I've ever taught or that I've ever known. Keep meditating and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bob.